Welcome to episode 27 on the journey to conscious healthcare. This is series four, episode one, and is called Exploring the Future of the NDIS Health and Education. In this podcast, we explore what it takes to consciously create longevity, happiness, and fulfillment in your life and that of others. The journey to conscious healthcare looks at the healthcare industry, disability sector, and how to best navigate these areas to get the best for you and your life. I'm your host, Trevor Keane, and I'm the founder and CEO of Conscious Healthcare SA, an expert company that is known for high-quality healthcare services and transforming the healthcare industry in the disability space. Today's episode, we go back and venture to our fantastic event on the 19th of October at Adelaide Oval, where I personally was lucky enough to interview the NDIS Minister, Bill Shorten. Before we jump to it, the show couldn't go on without the generous support from Conscious Healthcare SA. Conscious Healthcare SA is now employing. That's right, we're creating ripples and making available more dream roles for practitioners to fulfill on what it is that they do best. Rightio, I'll let you jump into the episode and I hope you enjoy listening to myself interview the Honourable Bill Shorten. Ladies and gentlemen, just as the wonderful Adelaide Oval staff are finishing clearing, I hope you enjoyed your delicious lunch. Mine was sumptuous. Um, we're about to have the first of our guest speakers this afternoon and we'll be joined by Trevor Keane, the founder of Conscious Healthcare SA. But before we just get that underway, I want to mention that for those of you both here in the room and externally, If you would like to participate by offering questions to the panel as um, they proceed this afternoon, you're very welcome to do so by going to slido.com. I also believe you can get there by entering into your mobile device, sli.do, and that will get you there. But slido.com, enter the hashtag CHSA or use the code and you'll be able to get onto that site and submit questions in live time while our panel is up here on stage and they'll be able to see them on a screen and they will address them accordingly. So again, if you would like to offer a question from the room or if you're joining us remotely, then please uh, join up now to slido.com and you can participate in this afternoon's discussions. Now, it's my very great pleasure to invite to the stage the founder of Conscious Healthcare SA, Trevor Keane, and he's going to be joined by the Honourable Bill Shorten, Federal Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, for a discussion. Please welcome them both. We might uh, start off early on in regards to access to the NDIS. So currently, we've got many individuals who aren't able to access the NDIS due to various reasons, whether it be costs, costly assessments, inadequate GP knowledge, uh, among other things. What's your viewpoint about how we can, uh, sorry, about how we adequately uh, about the process currently and how adequate it is, and what we can expect into the future? Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be here with Australia's first Minister for Autism, Emily Burke. So that's fantastic. And we're going to hear from Dr Josephine Barbro, whose work is world-leading. So it's an excellent panel. You've got to hear Trevor. Some days, you know, politics is like falling... I don't know how many of you are familiar with Alice in Wonderland, but 
sometimes you feel like you've gone through to the other side because <laughs> yesterday I did a press conference in Canberra with the esteemed members of the National Media Gallery and they were badgering me about too many people getting onto the scheme. <laughs> and my first question today in front of you is why can't more people get onto it? Uh, the truth is, of course, a bit of everything, isn't it? And uh, the scheme now has 550,000 people on it. So that's more than the Productivity Commission predicted when I and others were first campaigning to create the NDIS. So I do want to answer your question specifically, but I do also just want to set a bit of context in the first question, I'm sorry. But the NDIS is unique in the world. Um, I believe after nine years of the coalition government, though, it's off track. If it's working well, it's working really well. It's making life changes. I spoke to one of the lovely people who welcomed me uh, downstairs. She's uh, an attendant here at the cricket ground, at the football ground. She said, um, she quietly pulled me aside as I was coming up the escalator and said that the scheme's changed her son's life. He's now running a business in mental health, been a participant. When I got on my Qantas flight this morning, the lady at the uh, lounge, she teared up. She's got a 21-year-old who actually works for the NDIA, but it's changed their lives. So I guess really what I'm getting at, Trevor, is that I want to change the conversation about the scheme. Mm. It's legitimate for people to say there are problems, and there are, and I was the opposition spokesperson, so I could find more than most about it. <laughs> uh, but I think we need to sort of not take a blue sky view of the scheme or an unduly depressed view of the scheme. It's... Um, Eligibility is a key issue, but a lot of people are getting on the scheme. That's all I say. I just don't... Now, within that, there's a lot of debates about eligibility, and it's a, it is a really tough question. It's not the same as Medicare, where you have a GP as a gatekeeper, and the GP says yes, no. That referral is a sort of... It's, it's more complex now, but that's the, that's the sort of gateway. Under our scheme, and I support it, we have a view of disability which isn't just medicalised. Medical reports are very important. But what we have under the scheme in the Act is, in the operational guidelines, is there's sort of roughly, and I, I know for some of you who are real experts, I'm conscious that I sound like a precocious politician, but there's three categories. There are some conditions which, by their nature, you get into the scheme. Um, but that's like, you know, and I, I'm not saying all of them, but Pompey's uh, condition, which is basically fatal. It's, um, you've got to be a double amputee at least. Uh, you know, so some of these are sort of, it moves a bit more clearly. Then there's conditions like uh, autism, and, you know, I'm conscious again of the number of people who are much more skilled in autism than me, but if it's pretty severe autism, it's, it's more straightforward perhaps getting into the scheme than you look at the impact. Then there's a sort of general category um, where... You have a disability, but then you've got to assess, is it permanent? And I know there's plenty of issues about defining permanency, especially with psychosocial mm -hmm. conditions. But also, does it have a significant impact, impact on your capacity? So just the sheer presence of disability doesn't make you eligible. Uh, now, I know that one of the challenges in the scheme is transparency. This is an individual scheme. Your individual circumstances drive the packages of support. I've resisted it in recent years becoming a cookie-cutter 
sort of scheme where you just, you know, and that's where I was afraid if we'd lost the last federal election, it was going to go cookie cutter, just two or three categories, bang, one, two, three. Uh, but of course, if it's an individualised scheme, then there's not always a silver bullet, is there, to explain what's in, what's out. The medical profession are fantastic, but not all of them understand disability in a sort of socially, in a societal context as opposed to a medical context. So I think there's a challenge for the agency to put out materials which are easier to understand. Um, but having said that, we've now set up a review. We announced it yesterday, so you know, you're the first public gathering I've done since we announced the 10-year review of the scheme, although we brought it forward a year because it's important. Um, the review we've announced will be chaired by Professor Bruce Bonahady from the Melbourne Disability Institute and Miss Lisa Paul, um, who's a very, very distinguished career in the Commonwealth Public Service. We have uh, other members of the steering panel, people with disability, people with lived experience of disability, people the state governments have nominated. So it's a really exciting time, I think. It's, it, there should be a time of optimism. No doubt one of the issues the review will go to is how does information about the scheme get out there? How do you make the planning process better? But in terms of eligibility, we need to educate the medical profession more about the uh, community aspects of disability. That's no disrespect to the medical profession, but it is a, the, that's just the truth. It's not, it's not a medical issue per se. Um, and we need to retain that individualised approach. But I also think um, there is some... We've got to avoid the um, bifurcation or the creating a two-class scheme where, to be colloquial, if you're white, middle-class, tertiary educated and well-off, you know how to get onto the scheme. And if you don't have some of those advantages, it becomes a lot harder to access. Or you might live in what's euphemistically called thin markets, but I could just say you live in the bush where there's not as many resources or you live in suburbs where there's not as many resources. So they're all... it's. I, yeah, I think I have answered your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's, there's plenty of com there's plenty of complexity to that for sure, mm. uh, which I totally appreciate. And I think the review and the, the code design process that you're going through, I think is fantastic to mm. be able to open up different conversations and keep moving it forward. Uh, so we'll go to our next one, which we've got a participant who's jumping for joy as they've got, on, they've got their plan. They're now uh, having to navigate the NDIS. We've mm. got local area coordinators and mm. we've got support coordinators. So mm. are their roles going to change or what does the future look like for them? When I was helping create the scheme, I really saw two functions. One was to have someone to work with who would help you construct your individualised plan. And then I wanted someone, maybe even the same person who constructed your plan, to be your navigator, help you work out, okay, how do I, how do I get the best outcomes? One of the challenges is the scheme's been, in my opinion, and I know all of you hate politics, but these are just facts, um, except for Emily and I, and even we hate it sometimes, I'm sure, um, is that the scheme's vision shrunk in the last nine years. It became the leaders of the scheme just thought it's a payment system and everything else is not really their business, the workforce, everything else, and I don't share that view. When you've got $30 billion, it should be the big dog of disability. It should be, we should be you know, the rest of Australia should stand up when people with disability come into the room because we are consumers, you are consumers. You're not to be treated as charity or too hard or too expensive, but the leaders of the scheme sort of retreated from that. They just started measuring the line item of everything. 
So one of the predicaments of that approach is the uh, absolute uh, explosion of different titles in the scheme. When the scheme got to about 170,000 participants, the former government put a staff cap on the number of people to work at the National Disability Insurance Agency. So what's happened is that they realise there's more than 170,000 people on the scheme, so they created local area coordinators. That'll be a former coalition minister. Um, <laughs> um, but the problem is, um, so they created a fiction that, oh, we can't have any more direct employees of the agency, so we literally created partners in community. So what we did is created a political workaround. That doesn't mean there's not great work being done by partners in community and by local area coordinators. They do great work. But we've created something... We've retrofitted a whole lot of structures into the scheme to suit a political issue, but not to suit the actual best interests of the scheme or the participants. So... I do think that you need to have partners in community, especially in thin markets and areas. Uh, but I want to bring some of these jobs in-house over time. I want to make it being viewed to be a prestigious job to go and work, dedicate your life to working in disability at the National Disability Insurance Agency. Um, the call centre is done by labour hire. Fantastic people down in uh, La Trobe Valley and uh, amongst other places. But they're contractors. So you ring up the call centre... The contractor doesn't have access to your matter because, of course, because they're a contractor, they can't see the matter. So get this, we've created an outsourced scheme, but we make sure the outsourced workforce can't actually access the information in a seamless fashion. That, to me, sounds like politics. It doesn't sound sensible. Um, there's 1.7 million communications with the call centre. So they do the very best they can. But what we constantly do in this scheme is we solve short-term political problems rather than be true to the objectives of the scheme. So I'd like to see more of these jobs come in-house. Also, it's very hard if you're working as a contractor, even if you're on a three-year grant for the Brotherhood or the various services, you've still got to pay the bills. You might even one day think you might want to get a mortgage. Like, you've got a right to have plans, make plans. But if your employment periods are very short-term or uncertain, Sooner or later, I can't blame you. If you're the, it doesn't matter if you're the best local area coordinator in the world. You might choose to go and do another job because you've still got to pay the bills. So I actually think that the people structures within the agency are crucial. And that'll also eliminate some of the confusion. See, one thing which I know sends participants on the scheme and other people helping them to distraction is the constant need to re-explain your story to many different strangers. Uh, it shouldn't be the NDI shouldn't be a second full-time job. I wanted to replace the midnight anxiety of ageing carers in their 80s and 90s who worry about what would happen to their adult child. Could Australian society help keep them safe and give them a version of love? Uh, then what we've done with this, you know, some of the stuff in the last number of years is we've replaced that midnight midnight anxiety as with will my good package be cut? Well, how will I deal? How have I got to explain? And it shouldn't so. Yes, I respect the work of support coordinators, I respect the work of local area coordinators, I respect the work of plan managers, but we tend to, we've made structures for ourselves to solve short-term issues which, frankly, are not that hard. One of the big challenges I see in the NDIS is, you know, when you catch a, a railway, you get on one railway station and you want to go five stops. I feel too often decision-making in the agency has been that you have to change trains every stop. 
if I've made that a clumsy metaphor, what I mean is we only seem to do one thing at a time and you've got to wait till we get the answer to that question before we get to the next question. So I think we need to focus on outcomes in the scheme and we need to design a system which is focused around outcomes, giving people uh, opportunity. So uh, I, one of these areas, I was just speaking to a lady called Leanne Longfellow. She's a South Australian, she's an, she lives in Adelaide, but her brother David Harris uh, was on the scheme in Sydney. His plan expired. He, was pretty, he'd, he had a lot of issues going on, uh, uh, psychological issues, uh, some physical and they rang up to say, do you want to renew your plan or whatever, you haven't come in, but he was, couldn't communicate. And then three months later, they said the plan lapsed, the care stopped, the care stopped going and he died. So I was talking to Leanne today about it. We've got to do, I always envisaged that once a plan was created, I had in my mind actually the experience I saw after the 2009 bushfires in Melbourne, the terrible Black Saturday bushfires where 173 people died and thousands of houses were burned. I was working on the federal response. It was very traumatic for people and they had to deal with different government departments. When you're dealing with your own trauma and you've got to deal with multiple government departments and different levels of government, like that's re-trauma, that's re-injury, that's re-traumatising. So we created case managers, people who knew who you were. So if you're trying to rebuild in Smith Street, you know, um, uh, Kinglake, you didn't have to explain your story to different people all the time. And I thought, this is not a bad way to run a safety net where you have one person you regularly deal with. That's sort of what I thought we were going to create with the NDIS. But now we seem to, you don't deal with the same person on anything. The people you deal with don't have enough delegated decision-making powers. They've always got to refer it to someone else. Uh, There's cumbersome decision-making processes. So I know that's a long answer to local area coordinators and support coordinators, but I just worry that this system has created a lot of structures a lot of duplication, and in between all of these structures and duplication, then there's a lack of accountability. We've treated the staff of the scheme and the people working in community as sort of costs as well, whereas I think it's legitimate to give people working in disability careers. Oh, I completely agree. I think there's many things good said that about that, talking about getting more effective and efficient, and it sounds like there could be a bit of a change in the landscape with local area coordinators and support coordinators, plan managers just making that a bit more efficient. Uh, another topical conversation. Yeah, so Trevor, I don't want to panic anyone. Don't, don't, don't go home tonight and say, Bill, <laughs> Bill said my job's over. I'm just saying... I'll just change. I think that we want to... Or there's no change happening overnight in these areas. But I want to have a conversation, and I'm asking the review to deal with the fact that like, I want the same workforce we've already got. I just wonder if we can't let the workforce working there have to do less report writing, do a less bureaucratic rubbish, mm. and just be able to be the service for the people. That's why you signed up to do. So I didn't want to panic anyone. Oh, well said. Well said. Uh, in regards to registration, it's been quite a topical uh, issue. We've got many providers, as many as 90% that are unregistered, whether that be through Allied Health or whether that be support mm. coordination. What's your stance in regards to registration? Well, it's not black and white to begin with, so I don't get angry LinkedIn posts from the OTs. I love OTs. <laughs> I love OTs. But you know, last time I said anything about I don't want double pricing, everyone's gone nuts at me and said I'm pro- sorry. Everyone's got upset with me and said I shouldn't disparage the profession. I'm, we've got to reform the NDIS, but that's not a go at the contribution people are making. That's just a general catch-all, okay, caveat. So when you're talking afterwards, did Bill really say that? Just say, no, it's okay. Um, 
I think that if you deliver personal care to a person with disability, you have to be accountable for it. And so I start with principles rather than a particular name or title. I also think that if you're administering taxpayer money, taxpayers have a right to see that the money is getting to the person and it's not being siphoned off inappropriately. So if you start with the principle of transparency, accountability and quality and therefore safety, that's what guides my answer about registration. We have no plans to make everyone registered. But I do think if you're delivering care services, we've got to have a line of sight. I do think that if you submit an invoice, we've got to be comfortable that it is legitimate. Now, within that, though, I understand that for some people, they love self being self-managed, and I wanted to create that. Um, so I think making sure the workforce is qualified, is an appropriate thing to do. Now, whether or not you call that registration or not, we'll work through that, but that's a principle. And if anyone says that's an imposition on their free will, that's not right. You know, like, you've got to be qualified. I'm not saying that if you're a gardener, you've got to have a Cert 3 in care, but I am saying that for where, where someone's, you know, care is part of this service. The second thing is um, I do get concerned about back office of the NDIA in terms of scrutiny of invoices. Now, that's a different view. I, don't, I want people to be able to pick services, but I also want to make sure that the system's not being gamed. And I don't mean by a person with a disability. And we, uh, the last mob tended to think the only way you could ever do anything about the rate of growth of cost of the scheme is make it harder for people with disabilities to get their packages. That's absolutely not my starting point. You know, there's several narratives in this nation. One narrative I've spent my whole political life fighting is that a person with a disability is too expensive. Uh, I view that um, providing modest and reasonable resources to people with disability is an investment and it changes lives. But I do have, we do have an obligation to make sure that here's the taxpayer and the money's moving appropriately and it's great. Australians back the NDIS. It's, you know, we can be hard on ourselves, but that's, it was, it's a generous thing. It's, it's the right thing to do, but it's still nonetheless, it's a good thing. But the taxpayer expects, and this is important for the credit community licence of the scheme, that the money that's going to the person with disability gets there and it's not siphoned off. So uh, we're not hard and fast. I do also get that for some people being unregistered is better than being registered as service providers because they get sick of the red tape. I accept that argument, that's legitimate. But that doesn't mean that you give up on registration. It means that we've got to make registration more meaningful. And I think one of the things with the NDIS which you've got to look at is the length of the paperwork. I worry in the agency, and this is a generalisation, that a culture has developed at the senior levels that the paperwork we get you to fill in, be it reports, be it registration, is all about covering the arse of the person making the dis in the agency. And... Nothing is more destructive to human spirit than writing a report you think the person's not going to read or not qualified to read. Nothing is more annoying in a safety culture than a tick box culture where, sure, you've got a mark, you, you have a paper system of safety on paper or online, but it just bears no re relationship to the reality of how you do your job every day. So I worry that we're not measuring the right things, we're measuring the wrong things. So before we get to the question of where we stand on registration or not registered, Let's get the principles right and let's ask what is the purpose of it and I think I can build consensus around that, always acknowledging that 
I don't make registration too costly. And I'm, you know, I wonder if we haven't created a little bit of an audit industry where you go through the process of getting registered and that in itself becomes its own cookie-cutter factory. Uh, so am I answering your question now? I think yeah. there's, I, I believe in a principles-based approach to regulation. Measure and record and register what matters and still you know, keep and bear, bear in mind those other things, transparency, flexibility, cost of the system, but also quality and care. Fantastic. Welcome, Jane, back up. I'm sure I speak for many people in the room. This conversation could go for a lot longer, but we're going to ask no, a couple of other special people to join you. Um, Thanks, Trevor. So many questions as a journalist, so many questions, but I'm going to restrain myself. Oh, what a day that was. It was fantastic. We went through many topics there, myself and the Honourable Bill Shorten from accessing the NDIS, talking about transparency. If you don't get access or enough funding, at least being able to get an answer as to why. Going through about the 10-year review of the scheme, which is coming up, he announced that only the day before the event also covering through what the future holds for local area coordinators and support coordinators. Certainly sounds like there is a change on the horizon, not happening straight away. However, do keep your eyes and ears peeled. And then lastly, covering through registration. Is it coming in or not? An interesting conversation, certainly making sure that we get good bang for buck and also ensure that the right services are getting delivered at the standard that is required. That brings today's episode to an end. I hope you have found it educational and learnt something from it. As fellow Aussies, you know that there is nothing worse than being stingy. So if you've got value from this, please do feel like you can share this with another one who you think might benefit, whether that's a participant, a support coordinator, or a family member. As always, if you have any feedback for me, please do get in touch via the email. Likewise, if you're after some allied health services, please do get in touch with us at Conscious Healthcare SA. The details you'll need are going to be in the show notes. We'll see you on next episode where we cover part two. Thanks so much. Speak to you soon.